You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. The United States will defer the enforced departure of all Hong Kong residents who are physically present in the United States as of today, August 5th, 2021, for a period of up to 18 months. That's Ned Price, spokesperson for the U.S. Department of State. Just last night, U.S. President Joe Biden signed an order offering temporary safe haven to Hong Kong residents, allowing them to remain in America. The United States stands in solidarity with the people in Hong Kong in the face of cruel repression by the PRC. And the Chinese Foreign Ministry Office here in Hong Kong has, of course, responded by releasing a statement calling this a, quote, plot to oppose China and stir up trouble in the city, end quote. And they're demanding Washington abandon this plan they say is, quote, doomed to fail. The U.S. now joins Britain, Canada, and Australia in offering special immigration measures for Hong Kongers. But that's not the only international coordination we're seeing lately. On Monday, the U.S. launched another large-scale military exercise in our region, this one with Britain, Australia, and Japan in the South China Sea. And India is sending some ships to join them soon. Meanwhile, Germany is sending a warship to the region, its first in 19 years. But one thing we definitely know is that ship won't be stopping in Shanghai for a friendly visit. Angela Merkel's attempt at easing tensions by offering a friendly visit from a shipload of German sailors was met with a less than enthusiastic response. And with the Chinese Navy also conducting training drills in the South China Sea, we thought it was time for some in-depth analysis on just how crowded this increasingly contested part of the world is becoming. Dr. Ewan Graham from the International Institute for Strategic Studies will be joining us to talk about the latest developments in the South China Sea and what might happen if there's a clash in the waters. First, we're going to join our European correspondent Finbar Birmingham in Brussels to discuss the ongoing political maneuvers between member states of the EU and China. Let's get on our trainers and triple jump into it. Finbar Birmingham, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Chad. How are you? Doing well, Finbar. Thanks for joining us. We've heard about the German Navy for the first time in a long time this week, and we've also been introduced to a new word, Merkeling. Can you explain for us what's been happening on your side of the world? Yes. Well, I'll get to the words in a bit, but I think on the face of it, it's a very simple story. But the subtext to this story tells us quite a lot about German foreign policy over the past 16 years under Angela Merkel. Now, earlier this year, the Germans decided that they would send a naval frigate, the Bayern is the name of the ship, on a six-month tour of Asia-Pacific. And why is this? Ostensibly, and according to the official press release, it's to monitor North Korean smuggling rings, to do exercises on piracy in the North, in the Horn of Africa with some allies. The voyage will take in Australia, Guam, Japan, South Korea, Vietnam, Singapore. And of course, what the Germans didn't necessarily want to be in the headlines was that the ship was also set to sail through the heavily controversial um, the heavily militarized South China Sea on a freedom of navigation exercise, the likes of which we're seeing more and more from Western countries over the past, say, year. The, the background here is that this has been on the agenda of the Defense Minister, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer. Since she came into, uh, into office in 2019, she's been pushing for this trip 
Now, she is seen as being far more hawkish on China. She's much closer to Washington and London in terms of her policy outlook than she is to Merkel, um, because it's a coalition government in Germany. There are factions in the, in the highest levels. So you have more hawkish uh, defence ministry and a more dovish foreign ministry and chancellery. Now, this voyage, the theory is it would show that Germany is in line with its allies who have been conducting these naval exercises and who want Germany to join them. I'm talking about the US, the UK, France, you know, the big wigs of NATO and the G7. But in May, really at the last minute in, in terms of how these things work, the Chancellor's office, the office of Angela Merkel, thought it would be a good idea then to rather than to appear to be ruffling Beijing's feathers and sort of going out of their way to annoy Beijing, it would request that the ship make a friendly port of call in Shanghai before it enters the South China Sea. Now, this was seen as the ultimate hedge. It was sort of a classic German foreign policy. And China turned around this week on Tuesday and said, no, conditionally, until Germany explains what it's doing in the neighborhood and more detail, Germany's not allowed to stop in Shanghai. And it effectively called Berlin out on its indecision. The criticism here is that Germany's trying to have it both ways. It wants to appear tough on China, but it doesn't want to actually annoy China or in reality to be too tough on China to do anything that would damage the commercial relationship. And this is where that term you mentioned, Chad, at the top of the podcast, Merkel, comes in. It's a verb which has entered the German dictionary. And according to the German dictionary publisher, Langenscheidt, it means to do nothing, to make no decisions, to issue no statements. And that's what we've been hearing all week. People here are surprised by China's decision to call Germany out because this kind of nebulous foreign policy, it works for Beijing too, usually anyway. I mean, they're fine with Germany fudging its foreign policy because it generally means that it's not giving China a hard time in the way that we see from the United States. But now it's forcing Germany to declare its intentions, something that Merkel really would not have wanted to do as she enters the home straight of her time in office. So it's a bit of a mess. Um, it's the first time we've sort of seen China ask Germany to declare its intentions here. And we'll see what happens. I mean, it'll probably get resolved quite simply, but it's it's been interesting. It's caused a bit of a debate here in Europe. And again, it sort of gives a lot of ammunition to those who say that Germany is a perennial fence sitter when it comes to China. So, Finbar, I want to ask, has this issue exposed any real differences in, in Merkel's government and its relationship with China? Yeah, as I said, I mean, it shows that there are divisions there. Like, as I mentioned, the defense ministry led by AKK, as she's known, and Merkel's chancellery are really quite far apart here. I mean, AKK is much more in line with the United States. She's sort of much more sort of transatlantic in her outlook, whereas Merkel is a, the ultimate purveyor of this strategic autonomy where, you know, Germany wants to, and by default, the European Union really doesn't want to be under the influence too heavily of either the US or China. It wants to really plough its own furrow and it wants to have its own independent foreign policy. But, you know, there are dissenting voices, you know, large parts of Germany, large parts of the European Union want to be a bit more decisive. They want to, essentially, they do want to take a side. And, you know, this is being exposed here. In Finbar, do we expect AKK to stay around after after the election, since Merkel is no longer going to be chancellor? It's really unknown, Chad. So we'll have to wait and see how the sort of the chips fall after the election and the coalition is built later this year. And Finbar, how big is China in these sort of discussions ahead of the German election? Is it being mentioned? Are the Greens talking about it? What are you hearing in terms mm. of ahead of the election? How big an issue is China? In the U.S., it certainly has become a huge issue among politicians as they sort yeah. of show how strong they are on China. 
I mean, I have to say it's not nowhere near the top of the agenda, which is quite disappointing. Obviously, as somebody who reports on the Europe-China relationship, I want it to be very much front and centre. But I have to be honest here, it's not really. Germans have other issues, as all of Europe is incredibly focused on domestic problems at the moment. Like last month, we saw the worst floods for decades in Germany. Now, this has really been thrust to the centre of the policy debate, which has been good for the Greens because it has shed, a, you know, really cast light on, on environmental policy. It's brought climate change to the centre. COVID-19, the coronavirus pandemic, is front and centre. We're seeing, you know, uh, new waves of COVID with the Delta variant spread through Europe and Germany is no different, different levels of lockdown across the continent. So China is not really being mentioned that very much at all at the moment. Now, I will say that German election campaigning is not really the same as what you're used to in the United States or even in the United Kingdom. Like it's much more low key. You don't really have this sort of slanging matches, mudslinging that you, you would have in other parts of the West. So it's a, it's not really gotten to the stage where we're sort of seeing candidates called out for their ineffective China policy or, you know, for their dovishness on China. Maybe further down the line, I think we will see some sort of foreign policy debate closer to the actual poll, which comes at the end of September. Um, but for now, it's not front and centre. Uh, very much what they're interested in in Germany is the debate over coronavirus, the fallout from these disastrous and tragic floods as well as the economic situation. I mean, nowhere in Europe is really thriving at the moment. They're really struggling to dig themselves out of the hole from the coronavirus pandemic. So these are the real the real cornerstones of the election debate at the moment. And Finbar, I, I want to turn back to an issue that our regular listeners, you know, have heard a, a fair bit from you about Xinjiang and the ongoing U.S. sanctions on companies there. And, and I'm, I'm curious what you found out about exports from Xinjiang to the European Union. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, something I do periodically. I look at the data and the Chinese customs data and I sort of see what's going on and where uh, where are they coming from into Xinjiang and where are Xinjiang shipments going to. I was surprised to find out that in the six months, uh, the first six months of 2021, we saw 131% rise in shipments from Xinjiang from, from the province to the European Union. And now that was compared to the first six months of last year, which was, of course, Really a funny period because of the pandemic, but we also saw that when you compare these shipments to 2019, they were up 103.5%. So there's something interesting there is that while trade with the United States has fallen off largely because of embargoes, because of product bans, like withhold release orders that U.S. Customs has put on cotton products made in Xinjiang, and the general storm in the United States has really been a deterrent seemingly for people trading with the region, but we don't see that so much in, in Europe. Um, we see, for example, exports to Germany up 143%, to the Netherlands up 187%, and to Belgium up more than 1,500%. I mean, the massive increases. I will say that they're not enormous volumes. They're still a fairly small percentage of the overall trade between China and the European Union, but they're rising. Uh, you know, we had more than a third of a billion dollars in goods making its way from Xinjiang to Europe in the first six months, more than triple the amount that you saw shipped to the United States. Now, this is something that may change in the future. The European Union hasn't done any of the legislative stuff that the United States has. There aren't really many product bans here just yet. That will change. We're going to see some supply chain legislation called the European Union Supply Chain Due Diligence Tool is going to be unveiled in draft form after the summer break. This is seen as an effort to sort of 
get rid of some of these uh, products that are seen to be linked to forced labor from the European market. Now, you, you recall the accusation here is that China has imprisoned or detained uh, more than a million Uyghurs and other ethnic Muslim minorities in Xinjiang. It's a charge that China strenuously denies, but there have been mounting reports and evidence of campaigns which are designated internationally to constitute forced labor. Again, China denies this, but it's certainly something which has caused a lot of noise. The European Union's tool is being seen as being directed at this problem. You know, and this story that I did did sort of, you know, raise a few questions. I had people from the Commission <laughs> contacting me asking for where do, where do you get these numbers? Because I don't think they were even aware that this was going on. You know, these are based on Chinese customs data. You have to do your own calculations and so on. So it certainly made it made a few waves here. And, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens with this legislation later in the year. Finbar, could you tell us about the goods that we're seeing going from Xinjiang to the European Union? Is it cotton? Is it tomatoes? Is it solar cells? Tomatoes, Chad, you say tomatoes, I say tomatoes. We do see a lot of that stuff going to Italy. I mean, this has always been the way, actually. I've written about this before. Italy is by far the biggest buyer of Xinjiang tomatoes, which have been linked by the United States to, to forced labor. When I speak to experts on this, they say that it's absolutely dominated by two companies which have been really sort of implicated in the in the network of alleged forced labor in Xinjiang. So we do see a lot of that. Um, we see a big increase in exports of stuff that is used not as cotton, but stuff that's used in the sort of textiles uh, supply chain, the raw materials and, and the end products of certain types of polyester and stuff like that. You see going the other way, quite a lot of machinery making its way from Europe to Xinjiang. We saw Greece buy a whole load of solar uh, material from Xinjiang this year. You know, so it's a bit of a mixed bag. Cotton is, is one thing that you don't see so much directly going from Xinjiang to the European Union, whether that be, it's not really ever been a huge market. I think a lot of the, the cotton products made in Xinjiang are probably not directly exported. They probably go to other parts of China or other parts of Asia and then make their way into Western markets, which is something the United States has been trying to crack down on. It's sort of aware of the fact that, you know, a lot of the trade is, is indirect and it's sort of done through third destinations. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a mixed bag there, Chad, uh, something I'll be monitoring going forward. Well, Finbar, we can talk about potatoes next time. Thanks for joining us again on the podcast. Look forward to talking with you soon. Always happy to talk about spuds, Chad, as a proud Irishman, and I'll talk to you soon. Hi, I'm Jasmine, one of the podcast producers here at SCMP. Just a reminder about our latest episode for our Inside China podcast out this week. You're going to hear about Beijing's decision to smash the multi-billion dollar industry in after-school tutoring. It sent shockwaves from middle-class households in mainland China all the way to the big investment firms on Wall Street. Now, thousands of teachers are being laid off and billions of dollars have been wiped from stock market value. You'll hear analysis about why Chinese parents spend so much money on tutors and how this just might be the beginning of an underground education black market. That's this week on Inside China. Joining us now is Dr. Ewan Graham. He's a senior fellow for Asia-Pacific Security with the International Institute for Strategic Studies, based in Singapore. He's a specialist in maritime strategy and security in the Asia-Pacific region as well as the geopolitics of the Korean Peninsula and Japan and the South China Sea. Dr. Graham, thanks for joining us. We've had the HMS Queen Elizabeth Aircraft Carrier Strike Group from the British Navy sail past Hong Kong this week. We've also heard about the German Navy. Uh, they're sending two ships to the region. 
And yesterday we read India is going to send its own four ships for a two-month deployment. And so I wanted to start by asking you, how many navies from how many countries are, are we now seeing in the South China Sea? Well, it's getting crowded in there. The Indian ships that you referred to past Singapore Strait, where I'm located just this morning. So as they move in from the south, the, the British carrier group has already exited the South China Sea, and now they're on the way to Japan. But there are others on the way, not just the Germans. Uh, the Australians maintain a regular presence. They're sending ships up at the moment. And then the Canadians are in New Zealand. They may well cycle through. So what we see is actually... Uh, I think, some gathering momentum. In terms of the composition of those ships, I think a fair criticism uh, is that they are largely North American and and European, the Australians too. I think it would be good to see more Asian composition within that. But we do have the Indians present, and the Japanese, of course, bring a very sizable capacity, as do the Koreans, although they've been a bit more reluctant to uh, engage in these salt transits. I want to ask you, with the carrier group coming in from the UK, uh, were you surprised by the announcement that the British Navy is going to station two ships permanently in Japan? Well, it's not clear that they will be stationed in Japan. Uh, It is clear that they are going to forward deploy two ships. My understanding is that they will uh, divide their time across the Western Pacific from Japan in the north to Australia in the south, and that logistically uh, their hub is likely to be Singapore. But I wasn't surprised by it. I think it's an interesting development because forward presence is a very different ballgame to expeditionary deployments, the type that the carrier group represents. That means being in the region, it's a better learning opportunity, it's a better chance to integrate and to do defense engagement. On the other hand, these are two fairly small ships, so they're not going to affect the balance of power. Uh, And even the carrier strike group, although I think it's a bold statement of intent on the part of the UK government, I don't think it's really a serious shift in the balance of power either. This is more of a complex kind of balance, balance of resolve, the balance of presence. And I think that's the most important message that is being sent to Beijing here, that the South China Sea remains open. And to do that, you have to be physically willing to to prove it. And I want to ask you about China's response and what do we know about sort of China's deployment in the region right now? You know, obviously that there's been some fortification of islands in the South China Sea and those sorts of things. But what's China doing right now? Well, China is, of course, a coastal state in the South China Sea. It gets its name for a reason. China is currently deploying naval groups, including uh, its aircraft carrier in the region of Hainan. And there are several exercises that are ongoing. But I don't think China is going to ratchet up the military threat to these naval ships. I don't think it's in a position to stop them unless it wants a, a fight on its hands. Well, I don't think China wants a fight on its hands. And even if it were, there's no indication that China without combat experience would come out on top, despite the geographical advantage. So I think China is going to obviously uh, ratchet up the rhetorical opposition to the UK and another foreign navies that operate in the South China Sea. But that's a very different thing to physically structuring it. Yeah, and then earlier this year, you, you wrote about how the U.S. military might reposition itself into the Indo-Pacific region. This really looks like Joe Biden is not only increasing U.S. military presence, but also 
bringing in allies to take a look at the region. And, you know, is this sort of a increase of the pushback on China? Or is this a just more trying to bring everyone back together in a a bridge billing exercise after years of having America first president? Those two things aren't mutually exclusive. I think those countries also have a stake in the international order. And the fact that Germany, though it has a very close and cautious commercial relationship with China, is sending its ship to the South China Sea. I think it indicates a a shift, not a wholesale shift in direction, but at least a willingness to put skin in the game. I think from the United States point of view, the clear thing is the United States can't balance China on its own. It needs friends. It needs allies. The Biden administration realizes that. And I think that's why it's doubled down on its existing allies in the, in the region and attempted to repair the, some of the frayed fabric in, in those uh, alliances over the last four years. Those uh, navies do bring significant capacity, but I think the missing thing is to make sure that there is a, a coordinated framework so that this can be properly organized, regulated, logistically supported, and to make sure that it's above all consistent, because I think the uh, the worst outcome would be if we get a sudden flurry of international presence and then nothing after that. That undercuts the the message that this uh, is a a long term presence that needs to be sustained physically. And the United States, I think, understands that. Whether it's willing to embrace it to the level of creating. Uh, multinational groups is another issue. But of course, it doesn't have to be in the United States and either. I mean, other allies, as I said, are thinking on their own terms. They're not just answering the telephone from the Biden White House. They're here because they've concluded it's in their interest to be here. So they may well coordinate amongst themselves and the outcome could be still very much the same. But I think bottom line, the message that Washington should send to the region is that it, you know, it needs to be a multinational endeavor. And there's surely got to be a certain amount of symbolism that's out there with the, the British Navy sending a, a carrier group, you know, with a chief ship named after the Queen to the region, even though they did take a wide berth around Taiwan and they didn't come to Hong Kong. But that has to resonate in the collective memory in China, uh, you know, about gunboat diplomacy and also the first opium war. I think the imperial hangover question is exaggerated. Nobody talks about Japan having an imperial hangover when it sends ships to Singapore, and you don't hear that voice coming out of the Southeast Asian countries, most of which were colonized. In fact, it's the opposite. They seem to be uh, keen on having uh, more international stakeholders involved. Now, of course, China will play the imperial card, but I think the only other people who really believe that are those who are fervently against the Brexit decision in the UK. It seems that the UK uniquely gets tagged with this post-imperial nostalgia issue. And I don't deny there are some people in the UK who, who see it through that lens. And I don't think that's why this is happening. It's not why the Royal Navy has reconstituted a carrier stride group. It's not why the government has elected to pursue dialogue status with ASEAN. This is more about engaging with a region that is understood to be increasingly the economic and strategic global center of gravity. 
And speaking of ASEAN, you know, last week we opened our podcast with the U.S. Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin. He was making a speech in Singapore at an event hosted by your organization. And it started his tour through Southeast Asia. And it, it sort of was a curtain raiser to, you know, what seems to be the diplomacy that the U.S. government's going to try to do in the region. You know, we have Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State. He's got a series of meetings with the members of ASEAN. We've got Kamala Harris. She's uh, soon going to visit Vietnam. And, you know, the U.S. has talked about vaccines for everyone. Those were some of the quotes we were playing last week. And so why this sudden all hands on deck kind of push by the U.S. to shore up its relationship with its allies in Southeast Asia? Well, we're six months into the Biden administration. There has been a sense that they've been slow out of the blocks on Southeast Asia. Secretary Austin, in one of his first acts, uh, went to Japan and Korea. He then went off to India, and there was a sense that Southeast Asia was the neglected part in the middle. It's taken a while for that to happen, and he was also the first cabinet-level official to visit this region. But I think given that, they've made up for lost ground very effectively with Austin's visit. It wasn't just the symbolism of the speech in Singapore. He also uh, pulled out a major uh, save in the Philippines by rescuing the visiting forces agreement, which had been under threat from President Duterte. So I think the, there's a, a bit of a spring in the step, you could say, to the, the Biden administration's Southeast Asia policy and the visit of Vice President will will only add to that. I think the criticism, however, is that there is still no sense of a dedicated economic policy to the region from Washington. And that's what a lot of people in the region value above uh, anything else. And what they want is alternatives and options so that they don't have only to embrace China and the Belt and Road. They want to be able not to have to choose between these two dancing elephants, as is sometimes the image used. So I think the, the Biden administration does need to direct more energy towards the commercial and economic leg of its engagement in Southeast Asia. It's difficult to do that given the political headwinds in the United States. Uh, but they've talked about forming partnerships on supply chains. That's where the economics and the strategic agenda intersect. And I would like to see more progress on that one. Yeah, it, it does follow a time when we've seen, uh, you know, a fair bit of outreach in the last few years by China to its neighbors in Southeast Asia. And so for the U.S. to really put it at a higher point in the agenda, I, I think, is quite interesting to see. The one thing I wanted to turn to is, is just overnight, there were reports that U.S. is going to make its first arms sales to Taiwan under the Biden administration. Now, compared to what they did, you know, even uh, last year, the Trump administration sold $5 billion worth of arms to Taiwan. This one's relatively small, about $750 million worth. But is this a sign that we're going to see more of these kinds of sales coming to Taiwan? Or are we going to see more armaments heading that way? It's a signal that there is basic continuity between the two administrations, despite the huge political gulf between President Trump and Joe Biden. On China, they do have significant things in common. Taiwan is, is one of those. The United States is honoring its legal treaty obligation to provide defensive armaments to Taiwan. There's nothing new in that. As you said, this is actually less spectacular than some of the previous acquisitions that, that have gone to Taiwan. 
But I think we can connect it to Secretary Austin's speech here in Singapore, where he did go out of his way to refer to Taiwan. It's a tricky balance because he doesn't want to oversell the anti-China nature of the American message to Southeast Asian countries. But he did do that, I think in recognition of the fact that the whole of the region was listening to what he had to say. I think the question around the level of threat that Taiwan faces is being openly debated. On one side, we have a fairly stark warning from the Indo-Pacific Command that China may have the capability to undertake an invasion within five years from now. On the other hand, there are those who say that China is going to be very risk-averse to taking that kind of bold military maneuver in the uh, likelihood that the United States would intervene and that could end up very badly for China, not just militarily, but politically too, given everything that's been invested in Taiwan. But the core U.S. objective in this region is deterrence. Deterrence has worked in Taiwan in that China's long-standing position since the formation of the People's Republic has been that it regards Taiwan as part of its territory. It's made no secret of that and over its willingness to use force if Taiwan declared independence. It hasn't happened. Not because that intention has changed, but because of the consequences of that action framed against what the United States and its allies will do. Japan is also significant in recent times because it has come off, off the fence, you could say, and is now talking much more vocally about the importance of Taiwan to its defense. Again, underlying that these are countries with acting in their own national interests and not just at the beck and call of a phone call from Washington. I want to turn back to a bit of uh, Lloyd Austin's speech um, in Singapore. And he talked about the need to build a strong crisis communication system with the PLA. Now, we're familiar with the red phone between Moscow and Washington, but is there a similar kind of system in place right now between Beijing and Washington? Or is this something that we really need, you know, needs to be developed? And also... What happens if during all of these military maneuvers, we have, you know, some kind of incident between aircraft or ships where there's a crash or there's a misunderstanding? This isn't new. I think for a long time, it's been understood that there is a need to have communications to a, a very high level. And there were attempts to do that after the uh, 2001 incident involving the U.S. surveillance aircraft, which was a Chinese jet fighter crashed into it, and it was forced to land in Hainan. That was actually mentioned in a recent interview with Singapore's Prime Minister Yi Sien Lung in that same context, the need for crisis communications, certainly between militaries. Unfortunately, the steps that were put in place all that time ago have not yielded much for the basic reason that when the United States needs to call China, Frequently, it doesn't pick up the phone or else imposes conditions that there should be 24 hours advance notice, which obviously defies the whole nature of a crisis hotline. So it's a good idea in principle, and there's nothing wrong with having a direct leader to lead a link between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden. No one in the region would complain if that's the case. I think the issue more is, is that really going to solve the underlying issues? Because if China is a rising power that's deliberately foiling for advantage and spoiling for advantage in what a lot of people call the gray zone, that is taking advantage of the 
threshold below the level of armed conflict to change the status quo, then a crisis communications mentality isn't really going to solve the issue. It may solve the issue if there's a, a miscalculation, genuine miscalculation, but it won't if there's a deliberate attempt to raise the risk threshold. I think that's more the way that China's been working, frankly. Dr. Ewan Graham, thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure. That's all we have for the China Geopolitics podcast this week. In other world news, the Olympics will be ending on Sunday, and you can't help but notice how it's become a focus for national sentiment both in China and the United States. Who's got the most gold? Who's got the most medals? In Hong Kong, it's a case of who cares. It's been the most successful Olympics ever for this plucky little special administrative region. And in case you haven't seen it yet, check out the SEMP YouTube channel for our nightly Olympics segment, crossing live to our team of journalists in Tokyo. And of course, get the latest news updates and the best analysis on the South China Sea and all things geopolitical at SEMP.com. And on Twitter, you can follow our political economy desk at SEMP Economy. I'm at Chad Bray. Stay safe out there. Bye for now.